Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the create your own review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi and happy spring. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. In this episode, Dr. Lonnie Jones describes her latest research and what she believes are the implications for intervention with black women who are experiencing mental health and substance abuse problems. Dr. Lonnie Jones is Associate Professor of Social Work at the University at Albany's SUNY campus. Given the unique cultural, historical, and psychosocial challenges that are inherent in the lives of black women, Dr. Jones states that it is crucial that those attempting to intervene with this group utilize client-centered and strength-based perspectives in assisting with depressive symptoms. Addressing the barriers black women experience to accessing services, Dr. Jones touches on cultural competence and speaks from a practice and research perspective about the dangers of over-reliance on the manualized, one-size-fits-all approach and argues that black women need to be asked not only what is important to them in terms of a desired change, but what's important to them as black women. Dr. Jones describes a framework in which competencies are empowered related to increasing the women's belief in the successful change, managing their perceived stress levels, and coping in active ways in their lives. Dr. Jones spoke with Ajwa Robinson by telephone. This is Ajwa Robinson, host of UB School of Social Work podcast series, Living Proof. And my guest today is Dr. Lonnie Jones. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Jones. Yes, thank you. So your work pertains to African-American women who are substance abusing or at risk of depression. Tell me what you see as the magnitude of the problem. When you speak of magnitude, you think of many factors. One is uh, in relation to a lot of literature talks about service utilization and (laughs) service accessibility. And then you have to take in consideration cultural factors that come into play beyond accessibility, but relevance to the black women who come into treatment for depression. And then you have to look at a lot of the historical nature of the issue. What do you see as some of the biggest factors that prevent African-American women from getting treatment? One of the largest factors at this point in time would be medical or insurance access. It's probably one of the largest obstacles. And once you're able to control for ability to pay, then the second would be the need for matching or cultural understanding amongst clinicians and the consumers. Now, you've done some work around that in terms of designing interventions that would be more culturally appropriate. Can you tell our listeners about that? 
the intervention was not developed over a very short period of time, and it was something that I had set on for years, and probably about 15, 16 years ago when I was doing practice in a community-based setting in the Boston community. And it started by interest or women expressing their needs who were part of the early intervention program for the need of some outlet beyond the medical attention they were getting for their child or what their child was receiving in terms of services that were covered at that time under prevention services group of women, parents, I invited all parents, regardless of race, and we began to talk about some of the issues that were relevant to these women. Many of the women were, were I guess, would be classified as low income. Many did not have, say, a high school education. Several were single parents or living in uh, relationships that were not healthy. So I kind of began at that stage, and uh, what evolved from this, and getting together and just kind of allowing them, them to talk freely and to lean on each other in regards to issues that they uh, were facing in regards to their children and just survival in general. I picked up quickly that there was a group of the women, primarily ethnic minorities, Latina and African-American women, did not you know, feel free to share or express certain ideals or beliefs. So following that, I began to develop a, a program specifically to meet the needs of that population, which was astonishing. I mean, they were very active. They wanted to be an uh, active participant in helping to design the group and getting other women from that health community to come out and participate. And soon later, I began to run, duplicate the same program, whether it was on a college campus or in a shelter-based treatment program. But in short, the program not only sought to enhance one's psychosocial competence, meaning specifically here was to increase their locus of control and specifically focusing on externality, their belief in the fact that they could change their life outcomes and goals to help them to bring back some of that inspiration around believing that they were in control of their lives. And secondly, I looked at the piece of active coping, you know, how they cope and were they coping in an active way that was healthy. And then I had a, another component in there, and I thought it was important given a lot of their kind of complaints about what was going on in life, I started to also look at this notion of perceived stress. How did they perceive their levels of stress and what were the things that were going to help them to decrease these things? I developed the intervention based on around those pieces and soon began to look at techniques and tools that would enhance that process. And I found that a lot of book clubs were evolving at that time and really were geared towards, I would say at that time, more middle-class women. And so I found the use of literature that was authored about black women to be a powerful tool in the work with these women. You know, there really wasn't a difference whether I was on a college campus or in a shelter-based program. Women could identify, obviously, in choosing literature, enhance this process, I had to find a, sometimes I would go in, I'd say, you know, what are you guys interested in? And I would first have to gain kind of the reading level and even gain an interest level. And then these women, no matter what, were able to kind of identify in reading 
materials. For instance, a common piece of literature that I use is called Sisters of the M by Bell Hook. And even though it's really written in academic terms, a lot of these women could overlook that. And many times would come in and say, well, you know, Dr. Jones or Lonnie, you know, what does this mean? And there was also an educational component there that I had not readily had counted for. It was very powerful. That's kind of how it evolved and what the, the whole notion was that just the fact that these women coming together in terms of support and being able to work through some of their daily stresses in their lives and ultimately began to affect the, how they saw their future life outcomes and goals. And then they were able to learn from each other and learn and gain from the materials a sense of healthy coping. That's fascinating. Can you sort of contextualize these women for us? They were coming to see you in their practice. What were some of the issues that they were struggling with in terms of their lives that may have led to their depressive symptoms? At times, because it became what I would say so much more so a passion for myself, I often did not always run these groups, just clarify that, as a, in terms of a practice notion. But early on, it was connected to practice. And a lot of these women were coming initially around domestic violence issues, around issues struggling around self-care as well as care for their children that were kind of causing these uh, symptoms of depression. And later, I began to work with women who in more clinical settings where they did have some named mental health diagnosis and as well as uh, substance abuse difficulties. And mainly it was centered, um, I've done a lot of work in women with drug abuse histories and this group was most effective with them because they often would go into their treatment programs where mental health was not the key component and they would clearly be depressed but unfortunately on um, this day and age, things are so much separated out that did not have the opportunity to work with a lot of these depressions and symptoms that came up. And a lot of things centered around issues of trauma, childhood trauma, um, or adult trauma, issues around poverty that they had lived with at a young age and then resulted in other activities to try to survive. And then before they knew it, they ended up in these drug abuse situations to characterize it. It's pretty large and huge. And sometimes, you know, a lot of these women, the depression centered around race-related issues, feeling isolated or alienated because they, you know, were on a college campus and didn't feel supported or didn't know where to reach out or within the work environment. Before you started groups that you specifically designed for these women, you mentioned that you noticed that they were hanging back, not contributing in the traditional or not sharing in the traditional groups. Why do you think that was the case? What I later found out, a lot of it had to do with either a fear of being judged based on their experiences Mm -hmm. or just feeling as if they couldn't identify, that that was not their cultural experience and I can't identify, therefore I have nothing to say. And also the feeling that others would not understand where they were coming from. So you were running these groups and then at some point you decided to test them in a research context, yes? So can you tell us about the research you did on that work? So very similar. I I stayed pretty basic and I began looking at this notion of psychosocial competence and perceived stress 
And so a lot of my earlier work just tested whether or not the intervention would be able to change these outcomes. Two being uh, personality-based outcomes, the other not so. Obviously, it was much easier to change those that were not personality-based outcomes. Later, it evolved into, again, working with a more clinical population around issues of depression. While they may be in receiving some type of supportive service, counseling or actual therapeutic services, this whole piece around depression still had not been diagnosed. They could be in treatment, and for whatever, whatever reason, they were not displaying the symptoms or measures or uh, different things were not being picked up. So uh, later began thinking about depressive symptoms and adding in that measure to see where whether or not there was change from the start of the group program to the end of the group program. And luckily, I was able to work with some outstanding agencies who were interested in what I was doing, so they were willing to allow me to have an experimental design in my work in a control group scenario where there were women who participated in the group program at the time and women who did not but were slated to participate once that study piece was over and they could opt in or out whether or not they would want to participate. And so what did the intervention consist of? Well, there were several sessions. Well, and first I should say that it draws on a number of sources, whether it, as I say, the theoretical literature or published descriptions of treatment approaches used with this population. It didn't just go out there and and develop something that had nothing to do with this population. And then also when you think about from a theoretical perspective, it's based upon a very much so a cognitive-based approach for depressive symptom alleviation. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's just interesting because I know that there is a, or at least there has been a perception that African-Americans are not amenable to that kind of intervention. Yeah, if you go to some of Gina Miranda's work, specifically when it comes to group work and a few others, there has been shown with, in general, for African Americans and other black Americans that cognitive behavioral approaches have been useful. But the key piece is that, just staying on that topic, is that I don't think you can use a cognitive approach to stand alone in the work with them. It goes back to using the whole black feminist perspective as a lens for viewing these women, as well as using that whole conceptualization of psychosocial competence. These both become lenses. And using the whole notion of cognitive work with these women was just one tool or one area of change for them. And so if I was looking through those lenses, what would I see? What does psychosocial competence and black feminist perspective tell us about working with African-American women? It tells you to slow down and get, for each of these women, or as I was doing as a group, to get a picture of all of the pieces that these women bring to the process. Meaning, you know, and we stress and we talk about how we take this cultural piece, we take that into context. It's more than naming. It's more than saying, okay, these women are black and maybe religion's important. It goes far beyond that. It's almost asking them as this person, as being a black woman in society, what's important for you in terms of us naming what we've read and learned in the literature about what's important. 
but starting backwards. There was a time where I had to go backwards and say, what's important for you? And what's not just what's important for you in terms of change, but also tell me what's important for you. It's one thing in terms of change when you're sitting in your kitchen and you're having a conversation with friends or family, but it's another what's important and what's culturally important, what's important in terms of who you are and your identity when you go into a counseling situation, go into a group situation, what becomes important. So that lens allows you to adjust each and every time a topic or issue or a difficulty arises, whether it's around an individual or a grouping of people in that group. So I can't get stuck on how I'm going to do something each week with these women. Even though it's manualized, it gives the flexibility to shift and change, and that's one of the criticisms of manualized interventions. Most people take it for as it is. You go in, you read, you engage in these activities, and you leave. But you have to be able to, with this population, stop, ask questions, and say, hmm, something to consider, and then go back. It, it takes a lot of work, and we have to, you have to be willing and committed to put in a lot of work with this population because of the, as we talked about earlier, the huge impacts, the factors that come with this person into treatment, the historical the fears around treatment not working anyways because I am who I am, am. The fact that most treatments historically have not been congruent and then we can go on and further and further. Just common information that's known historically about whether it's medical treatment or any type of psychological or social support for this group. The lens is just about taking this group of people, taking the individuals who are who they are, and having the flexibility to shift. And often sometimes I'm having to allow them to guide what happens next and not relying on the manual to give me what I need, but relying on the group. We talk about this notion of mutual aid, but so it's actually putting it to use. It seems like being up high on a tightrope. I have to shift. I have these ideas in my mind, but I have to shift. What might happen here? Do you ever get that off-balance feeling? I often the, the off-balance feeling. But, you know, it's interesting. As a practitioner, the balance then comes for me once that group member says, well, so-and-so, I understand where you're coming from. And it quickly balances me, and it reminds me of where we need to be in terms of social work, in terms of treating groups who bring a diversity of need to your practice or within the treatment group. It's work. It's constant work. I'm constantly having to find that balance, but you have to be committed to that balance. It's not something you walk into and just hope that it's going to work out and that you're going to bill and everything's going to be fine. No, I'm constantly finding balance, even within the research. There's a constant battle. There's always a battle to explain because often when you're, you're moving outside the box, you have to rely on other things to support it, and sometimes you cannot support that. So you can't be afraid to say, you know, there's really nothing to explain this behavior, find this notion. But this is what's being seen consistently in and out. Therefore, maybe it means the development of new tools in terms of measuring, but 
there's always going to be a fight to explain something within working within that box because the group is obviously always shifting. And I'm not sure when, you know, this particular population, black women will get to a point where you can just say, well, we'll we'll try this and it will work or fit into that box of say what has been prescribed in terms of substance abuse treatment, these different programs, and it just works. I'm not sure when that's going to come. Should it necessarily come, or is that something we should be expecting? Should it necessarily come? My belief is no, but is the thought that it should come beyond my thinking? Yes, because if it doesn't come, and this is one of those external threats, then it's possible that many women will still go undiagnosed and untreated. It is still, if you don't fit into the box, you don't receive the service. You don't get it, whether it's because you're walking away and afraid to say, this doesn't work for me, or that's what the man is saying. That's what the treatment is built on. It's a tough question. It's one of those paradoxes where it's actually very scary because it's almost as if if you can't fit in this box, you don't belong. We'll just continue ignoring or devaluing or, you know, not having the answers, so not speaking up as providers as well. My advice would be to, first of all, to be flexible. Be flexible in your approaches to working with various groups. Secondly, I would say take time, especially as it pertains to black women, to better understand the cultural things that have often come up for this population. And that's not saying that all blacks have experienced the same instances historically or currently, but rather it's kind of like sitting down to read a good book, but rather get an understanding of the diversity of women, of black women in particular, that uh, exists out there to understand the themes around, yes, the importance of religion, but understanding the diversity that exists among those women, to understand themes, kind of family pressures that come into play, understanding themes of the importance of around child-rearing, to better understand ways of understanding depression within the population. There's been a new construction for many ethnic minorities in general, and understand that new construction, whether it's around language, and language is becoming much more difficult, but whether it's around language or expression of symptoms. And, and the other is, I was writing a vignette the other day, and I was writing it based on some of my previous practice experience, especially if you're doing in-house, in-house I'm meaning that you have clients who are coming to you. And I was writing about, I remembered a situation where the first thing, a young woman came into the office I was working at the time, and she she was able to identify with a cultural piece of art that I had on my wall. And sometimes it's those simple pieces, and how that came like the starting point, given all the things she had dealt with, the starting point for our work. So what's next for you? What's next for me? So much, but I would say... To do more training on the work that I've done, training others, sharing with others, to be because we know the numbers of black women ending up in drug abuse treatment, to try to come up with a very flexible curriculum for that population that can be integrated into current substance abuse treatment. 
to go back because, as I stated, it's a learning process. I've uh, gone back already and done some uh, qualitative work to better understand perceptions and what has worked and what hasn't worked in terms of the services I've delivered it, delivered as well as services that they're receiving in the mental health and substance abuse arena. If folks were interested in the work that you're doing, is there a way that they can a hold of the manual? Yeah, yeah. One of the great things in many of my works, I've gone to great lengths to, to identify and to be specific in terms of uh, outlining what's done in the in the manual. Otherwise, I'm working on more, say, publishing a manual, but um, I, they can contact me. I'm at the University at Albany School of Social Welfare. Um, my email address is ljones at albany.edu, and you're welcome to post that on the web so that people have access okay. to that information. But I'm always willing to share and not go beyond just, you know, I don't like to just hand over a manual, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to give my time to say, this is what helps to make it effective. Is there anything I haven't asked you? No, I, I don't believe so. I think you covered a range of topics, and, you know, if there was something I was going to leave as well as that is that one has to become committed to justice, to social justice. As you stated, advocacy is one piece, but I believe that for this population in particular, you have to be, you should be committed to social justice and you should understand really what justice means and incorporate that into practice because that just is what drives you is what helps you thrive when nothing else works. It's that motivator, it's that push to help others who we've often and we don't know we have has helped to demean or to devalue kind of their position in society. So it's kind of tossing out all the old behaviors and habits and knowledge and saying, you know, I'm committed to helping someone, whether they're poor or they're black or they're a teenager, but it's that commitment to social justice that will drive, I think, I believe, excellent curriculums for change for these populations. Well, very good. Well, it's been great talking to you. Yes. And again, for being willing to do this. Yes, take care. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to Dr. Lonnie Jones describe her research related to a culturally specific intervention aimed at strengthening the psychosocial competence amongst black women who are experiencing mental health and substance abuse problems. See you next time on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, We invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.